Welcome to episode 35 of the Aquarius Podcast, sponsored by Aquarium Co-op. Before you listen to this episode, I want to say that I thoroughly enjoyed interviewing Mr. Rosario LaCourte. I'm honored that he sacrificed some of his time to sit down and speak with me. However, after listening to this recording, I knew that I had to express my feelings that this one podcast interview alone is not enough to even begin to tell Mr. LaCourte's story or convey how important his contributions to the hobby have been. I had no idea that the opportunity to interview Mr. LaCourte was going to come up at Aquatic Experience 2018. Even if I had, I don't think I could have prepared myself to conduct an interview to better frame just how important of a role he has played in our beloved hobby. So, I would highly recommend that everyone that listens to this episode and holds our hobby dear buy a copy of Mr. LaCourte's autobiography, An Aquarius Journey, so you can read it firsthand who Rosario LaCourte is and what he's done for tropical fish keeping. I read this book nonstop on my six-hour flight home and have only one final chapter remaining. This book is remarkable and has me searching inward on how I can leave a positive mark on tropical fish keeping and ensure future generations continue to enjoy their own Aquarius journey. Thank you for allowing me to express my thoughts and feelings regarding my personal time with Mr. LaCourte, and I truly hope you enjoy the end result. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Saturday, October 20th, 2018. Uh, this is the Aquarius Podcast, recording at uh, the Aquatic Experience 2018 in Secaucus, New Jersey. And I have the pleasure of being able to interview an absolute legend in the hobby, Mr. Rosario LaCourte. Um, he's here with me right now in my hotel room, and we're going to record an episode for the Aquarius podcast. Um, I don't have, you know, my usual laundry list of kind of a biography introduction, but um, if, if you've been in the hobby and, you know, you know some of the, the people that have been in it for a while, uh, Mr. LaCourte is an absolute titan in the industry, um, in the hobby, and it's just an absolute pleasure to, to be able to interview you, sir. So welcome to the Aquarius podcast. Thank you very much for being so gracious to take your time mm-hmm. and to talk to me. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. Excellent. So, I mean, just to start with the origin story, you know, how did how did somebody, you know, that obviously is so accomplished, what was your, you know, what were your beginnings in the hobby? What were some of the first things, you know, your first experiences? Well, as the book will tell you, you know, I just finished having the Aquarius Journey. It was just published a few months ago, and I kind of outlined how I got involved in this. I always loved nature as a young boy. I used to collect polywogs and watch them metamorphose into frogs. I was always interested in insects, any kind of living thing I was interested in. And that's what started me. And, and there was a, a, a medical doctor down the street from me by the name of Dr. Edward Bowler. His, they made, his family made Bowler's uh, soda in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And he had a tank full of guppies in a window. And before I got involved into tropical fish, I used to go down to the Kill Van Cull, which is only about five blocks from where I lived, and collect killies, which were fungulus uh, heteroclitis. And I'd bring them home in milk bottles. Couldn't keep them, didn't know much about them. But I never, I never relent, I never gave up on I was relentless, I kept at it. And eventually I got some guppies from Dr. Bowler, who had his, he had a friend at a fish farm in Florida. And that's where he got his guppies from. And he was kind enough to give me a few, and that's what started me. And when I saw the dazzling colors in the male guppies, I was really hooked on them. And then that graduated when I went to Woolworths Five and Dime. They had, every Woolworths Five and Dime had a little tropical fish section, and you saw black mollies, the common stuff, platies. And uh, in those days, they were only like 20 cents, 29 cents. A lot of money for a kid. You know, it was just during the end of the Depression days in the late 30s. And then uh, when I got a few pennies, I'd buy a few fish and put them under my uh, jacket if it was the wintertime. And they would, they would give you uh, these little cups that were, uh, I guess you'd get, get Chinese food today, a little container with the little metal uh, handle. And that's what the fish were. So we'd put them underneath our jackets if it was wintertime. And that's what got me started. And I'd always go for a female uh, sword tail or a platy that was pregnant if she was pregnant you know you're going to get some babies from her so and then i'd get some young out of it and that's what started me off and then it graduated into a a little bit more i got a few tanks uh, some of my uncles and aunts they would or even my godfather would give you a dollar two dollars and then <clears throat> then you would save a few dollars and you'd buy a fish tank and that's and it evolved it kept getting bigger and bigger and then uh, after World War II was over, 
Uh, we moved to the north end of Elizabeth. My two brothers came back from the service. I was too young for World War II. And uh, I gradually began to build up a small batch of tanks. I think I had maybe 14 or 15 tanks in the house. What does your family think of all this? Like when you were as a young uh, kid and this interest of yours? My father was a great gardener. He loved, uh, my father and mother were from Sicily. So every Sicilian had a farm. So that meant they had livestock. They had almost anything you could think of. And my father was no different. He still brought all his old, <coughs> old world habits into the United States. And we had ducks in the yard and we had chickens. And my brother wound up raising some pigeons and he got involved in canaries. But then he went off to the war. He got wounded twice, Brother Frank came back safe and sound. Brother Joe came back safe and sound from the Air, Air Corps. And uh, so we, I had about 15 tanks. And then when I graduated in 1947, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So one of my friends talked me into joining the Army Air Corps. So we joined the Army Air Corps. And I remember my brother saying to me, you sure you want to go? That's three years is a long time to be away. Oh, no, that's what we're going to do. I didn't know what to do with myself. And the Korean War broke out, and I got stuck for that. Truman said he was going to extend our, our enlistment, so I got stuck for that. So the tanks that I had before I went to the service, I kept them under the porch in, in, our, in our home. And when I got back, I took them back out. They were under there for four years, and I started up again. So my brother Frank, he loved, he loved nature too. He, he was really into it, and, and he was single yet, and I was the first one of all the boys to get married. There was five of us kids. And so uh, Brother Frank said to me, what would you like for Christmas? I said, I think I'll have a fish tank. Maybe you can buy me a fish tank. And that's what started me. And he, he liked it too. And he would take uh, Jeannie and I, my wife, uh, and take us to the fish stores, and we'd pick up a few fish. And uh, What were those species that, that, when you got back into it, what were you focusing well, on? Well, I saw my first neon tetra uh, bef- right after the war. And I was. This was when I was in junior high school. I, I wasn't. A, I wasn't a, a senior yet. I saw my first neon tetras, and they were like sixteen dollars. I mean, six dollars, a lot of money. Boy, it was big bucks in those days. Because <clears throat> I think my father probably made fifteen or twenty dollars a week for that, a salary. And that's more than they are now. Yeah. And adjusting for inflation, yeah. that is wow. Six dollar back then. A lot that of money. Is a lot of money. A lot of money. And so it was out of reach. I couldn't reach by anything like that. And so uh, I just gradually got bigger and bigger, and I had a little room in the, in the we lived in the upper part of the, my parents' home. We'd consider an attic. They weren't really attic rooms. They were just the third floor. And then my family began to grow. I had two boys, and we had a small room. That's where I had my fish. I had to move them out, so I decided maybe I'll put a fish house in the garage. I said to my father, Hey, Pop, how about if I, can I take one of those rooms and make a fish house out of it? Go ahead. So I did. But, you know, I outlined the whole thing in the Aquarius journey. I'm giving the whole story away. I shouldn't do it. <laughs> we, can, we can jump to it. Yeah. We can jump to it. You can time. ask me other questions. <laughs> yeah. I'd be, yeah. I, I'd, Absolutely. Be, I'd be giving yeah. the whole book away. Yeah, so we'll make sure this uh, an Aquarius journey. Um, you know, I'll, I'll make sure I find out. Uh, I'll get some links to this book where people can buy it. I've got a copy. Uh, be jealous because I have a signed copy uh, by you. So that's that's absolutely fantastic. Um, let, let's talk about your breeding of neon tetras when you eventually did. Well, yeah, that was a big thing for me. Uh, and uh, that was still when I was in the uh, upper upper part of the house in what I'd call the attic. And in Elizabeth, we had fantastic water. I mean, you could take water right out of tap. And I let it age for a day, and I'd put the pair of neons in, and they would spawn. We had very soft water from the Wanake Reservoir up in North Jersey. And, of course, I had a lot of great live food in those days. And uh, it was a learning experience. That's one of the first tetras I, that I actually bred. Actually, they bred because I had good water. And I knew how to handle them. And at first, I uh, was wondering, what am I going to feed them? Everybody talks about infusory. We didn't know that much about it. I didn't know it. I was really a novice yet. I had experience with libraries, but I didn't have much experience with tetras. <clears throat> so I, uh, I found out you could use uh, egg yolk. It was all right. But then one day I just accidentally dropped some brine shrimp in there, a newly hatched brine shrimp. 
Accidentally. And accidentally, yeah. I was feeding and a couple <laughs> drops went in or I might have squirted some in there and I looked at them. Of course, my eyesight was very good in those days. I was still a young guy in my early 20s. I said, wow, look at the pink bellies on those babies. They're that tiny. They can eat that brine shrimp. And I found out, well, you could feed them brine shrimp as soon as they're free swimming. And it worked out pretty good. So I start raising a lot of them. All of a sudden, and then I think about 1952, 53, 53, I joined the North New Jersey Aquarium Society. It was a very vibrant society. They started in 1932. And uh, so I joined the club there, and all of a sudden I became the star. Every, wow, this, guy, this kid is breeding the untouchers. Can you believe that? Nobody, I mean, that was a big thing in the early 50s, even the 40s. Hardly anybody did that. They didn't, it was a big secret. There was no secret. You just had to have good soft water, and you fed them good, and they were conditioned. And it turns out they were not that difficult to spawn. But in those days, there's really not much knowledge about it. And that's what really started my uh, my epic journey, let's put it that way. <laughs> and it, 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 it kind of gave me stardom at an early time. And I branched off from that. I met some wonderful people in the, in the uh, that were in our club, and uh, it just kept getting larger and larger. My fish room got larger and larger. And then in 1960-61, I, I increased the size of the garage. I took over the three-car garage. And uh, <clears throat> I had an invitation to get involved in Instant Fish, and you could read it in the, in the book. And uh, the people that wanted to get involved in that, they were going to package this in a, in a, a cart, and you, know, you can buy a whole toy. And uh, they advanced me some money, and we were able to expand. And it wasn't for that. I wouldn't have had the fish house that I did because I certainly didn't have the money. I had a growing family. By that time, I had five kids, and uh, I was the only breadwinner. I didn't want my wife to work. I wanted to, I wanted the kids to have a mother around. We were family orientated, and uh, so it just got bigger and bigger. And uh, that company really gave me the impetus to, to to really develop the whole place. And the instant fish thing, I knew it wouldn't last. Because when you're dealing with livestock and you're dealing with the general public, they just don't have the general knowledge. Some people, it's a flash in a pan thing. Like yeah. one of the big things in the early 50s was chinchillas. Boy, you get a chinchilla. They spent $1,200 for, uh, for one or maybe a pair. I forget what the price was. And boy, you're going to get big money for the, for, the, for the pelt. Well, it turns out you had to brush those chinchillas and not everyone was, you know, top quality to use for a fur coat so anyway that's what happened my my fish house got bigger and bigger and i had more and more visitors and then eventually i had visitors from all over the world as a matter of fact i think 1963 i had a ledger that i found a book that i found it was unused somebody threw it away because the date was changed I know this is a good book. I think I'll use it to uh, record my breedings, and I can keep a record in the fish house. So I did. I kept a record of uh, all the different fish that I spawned, the day they spawned, what was a spawn a success, how many did you get? I didn't count them, but, I mean, you can just a general uh, uh, quick look to see uh, and get an idea on average what the spawn was like. And then 1963... I had a visitor from uh, Africa, and I decided to make a guest book out of it. So I have to laugh because I was just thinking about it. About a year and a half ago, I said to my wife as I was sitting in a book, finishing up on a book, I was adding some things to it and just polishing it up. And I had the guest book in front of me, and I counted the guests that came from all over the world that signed our guest book. I said to my wife, Hey, honey, I says, how many people do you think have been to our house to visit us from all over the world? She says, oh, at least 100. I says, no, keep going. 150? No, keep going. 200? No, you know, I'm, let's, I won't play a guessing game anymore. I says, I just finished counting. There's 532 people in our house that you fed. I mean, almost every person that came to our house, they either had lunch or they had coffee and cake. They had a cup of coffee. They had some kind of refreshment that my wife, and she was really the star. She, if it wasn't for her, I would have never done what, I've, what I accomplished because she was very gracious. She never, never complained, never griped. 
she was the perfect wife. Really, I, I owe her a lot. Oh, that's amazing. And, and she was. She's. And after we're married 67 years now, we're going into our 68 next next month. As a matter of fact, November 18th will be 67 years. Congratulations, sir! So that's a long time, and we're going into our 68th. I hope we make 70. Oh, excellent! So, yeah, it's it's amazing how this hobby can can pull together so many people with yeah. this shared interest. Such a diverse background um, that that find passion, enjoy in keeping fish. So that's that's fantastic that you share that with us. I um, wish I had started that guest book. In, in 1954, that's when I really started to gain a little notoriety and people used to visit. If I had started that book then, I would have had names in that book that it would have, it would have been almost a 1,000 people. Wow. Because I had some very famous people there in the hobby that passed away since then. But they, were, they, weren't, they weren't around in the fi- late 50s. They died or in the early 60s. Of course, they started it in 63. But I, I often think, though, there would have been, I would have had close to 1,000 people. Wow. But those were the golden years. They were really, it's too bad the hobbyists of today couldn't get a little picture of what life was like being in a hobby. Then it was a fantastic hobby. It was wonderful. We had a lot of live food. Clubs were vibrant, a lot of pet shops. It was a very, very vibrant hobby. I think the big shops and the big places kind of killed it. And uh, the biggest thing is the electronics. I think electronics, actually you could see it creeping in when the TVs came out around uh, maybe the early 50s, 53, 54. TVs were around and since ni- you don't, may not notice, but the TV was invented, I think, in 1929 was the first time. There was actually a broadcast in TV as an experiment. But you could, after the war, they start building TVs. And people could afford to get them, but they were small, and you needed a big magnifying glass to see the, the picture that was, uh, you had the image. So in the uh, early 50s, mid-50s, TVs became more prominent, more and more diversified programs. And now you can see in our club, some of the clubs I belong to, oh, I won't be able to make the meeting tonight because I want to see such and such a program, because some of the programs were really, they were entertaining. And you can see how the electronics was starting to erode hobbies, and then it really became prevalent now in the last 15, 20 years. Now you see kids with uh, these, all these games. They have, they have their own iPads or iPhones, and everybody's forgot about what hobbies are like, and I feel sorry for the kids because when we were kids, every waking hour of our time, we were on a sandlot. We were playing ball. We were running. There's a reason why nature has young kids. You go to a playground and you watch little kids. Did you ever see them walk? They're always running. They're running into nothing. They're going after nothing. They just run. I can t- attest it with my and son. <laughs> they're is, always yeah. running. And there's, you know what? why that is? Nature in her wisdom has programmed kids to run because that's what builds strong bones. And I feel sorry for a lot of kids today. That they go to, I've been to the restaurants. I see... Uh, mother and father and two kids and every one of them have an ipad in their hand no conversation the kids don't speak anymore there's no conversation uh, interchange between families the kids aren't exercising when we were kids we were playing we were until the sun went down we were running jumping we, we were doing something all the time we never went to the doctor now everybody's going to the doctor for something but there was even when we had our pets we had dogs our whole life. We never took them to a veterinarian. They just tired of old age. Now they have vets. You get uh, cat scans. You get x-rays. And uh, they have to special food. So it's even creeped into our pet pet line. I, I, really, I really have a hope for, and I, I agree with what you're saying, but I really have a hope for that the technology, though, that um, what we can now do with how connected people are, that... Um, by sharing our experiences in the hobby, like yeah. with, with through a format like this and some of the guests that I have, I hope that um, we can continue to share and try to bring new people in and expose people. And hopefully it kind of resets what I think, you know, what you're alluding to, what's happened over right. the past couple of decades, mm-hmm. that people get back and they appreciate nature, mm-hmm. right? And they try to find more balance in their lives with all of the digital, you know, advertising and media that's out there that's constantly bombarding us, right? That wasn't right. around <clears throat> hundreds and hundreds of years ago. 
um, you know, that we that we now have today, and that some of the things that kind of happen in our society or even internally with us might be caused because we're so addicted to the technology and everything that that, right. that is. So so hopefully maybe there is a silver lining there that we can kind of you know start reverting back some of that damage and getting more people engaged with nature and with things like aquariums or reptiles or these natural hobbies, if you will, right. um, so that they can appreciate that. Um, it, what kind of tips would you give for, you know, with your prolific experience in breeding, you know, I myself am, am a fledgling breeder, right? right. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I hope to be in this for a very, very long time and have <clears throat> wonderful experiences and, and successes. Um, but what are some kind of key, um, you know, things that you've learned or things that you would share with somebody like me um, as they go on their journey of breeding different kinds of fish? And what, what would be some general tips that you would like to, you know, extend out there? Well, the most important thing, of course, is cleanliness. Observe your fish. Really, a big thing is you got to give them the right diet. And uh, if you're just going to feed uh, dry food out of a can, you're not going to have very much success. You can culture live foods in your own backyard. There's a lot of books out there that you can learn from. Even Well, we have the Internet today. There's so many things. Uh, of course, there's brine shrimp. You can hatch your own brine shrimp, and you can raise them to adulthood. That, that's a possibility. You can even culture mosquitoes in your backyard, even though it's, I mean, some people might shudder at it, but you can control it if you're careful. You can get live food that way. Just let it fly to you, you know. And, uh, of course, if you've if you got a little innovation and you've got some drive, a good time to go is in the wintertime or in, in, in early spring. Go to the woodland. Look and see any pools and ponds. You might be surprised that there could be Daphne. Not, it's too early, but if there's no fish there, go back there. Learn and find out where they are. Then go back when it starts to get warmer. You may find a Daphne upon her. If not, you, if you can maybe get some Daphne from somewhere and seed it. And uh, I know in Jersey, in the northern part of Jersey, there are some places that are still, uh, they still have fairy shrimp. Fairy shrimp is a wonderful food, only it has a very short window. You could culture earthworms. There's a lot of things. I'm not a fan of white worms. A lot of people feed white worms. How about the red uh, wigglers? Any any thoughts on those? You mean your, uh, red worms? Yeah. Uh, yeah, red. fine. I used to raise okay. them real, real fine ones and chop them up. It's excellent food. Uh, I'm not a fan of white worms because, first of all, there's not much carotenoid in it, so you're not going to get much color. And fish only color up from what they eat. They can't manufacture their own. Uh, some of them are born with color in them, but to really excite it, you have to. They have to ingest the proper food that's rich in carotenoids that'll really excite the chromatophores, where they're going to show their colors. So there's a lot of things you can do. You'll just the best thing to do is you read a lot of books. There's a lot of books out there. Internet is a wonderful source. So, but the technology today it's really great. I mean, there's some great things for that. You can pick up a lot of stuff. There's an interchange between people. That's what's great about the internet. You can make friends all over the world now. Exchange ideas. Uh, there's so many things that are available to us. So, the hobby can be a a success, not, not in the sense that we had because we had so many live foods, but I still think there's a lot of live foods out there if you really search for it. And I think the little thing that I just, the little story I told you about going out in the spring when the foliage is down and the woodland is clear of any kind of foliage that obstructs your view, you can find little pools and, and, and make your own in your own backyard. So you can culture stuff and help yourself in that way. Has has there ever been a fish that has eluded you in terms of breeding success? Do you have any, or or were you you pretty successful with most, or almost all of it? Well, I tell you, I think at the height, I think this might have been in the uh, late 70s, when I was starting to make some of the trips to Brazil. I had about 150 different species of fish in my fish room. I bred most of them. There's some that, uh, they're tough nuts to crack. I mean, it's just, maybe impossible to to really breed them in captivity there's something lacking but today uh with the technology they have almost any fish they can yeah. they can breed now but they're using hormones and stuff like that and to me that's kind of cheating but all right if they can do it that's fine 
What, what was one in particular that really gave you a struggle, but maybe you, you actually ended up being able to breed it? Any particular species that comes to mind? No, not really. I can't think of anything offhand that uh, really eluded me. I was pretty fortunate. I bred a lot of stuff. I never kept count, but there's an awful lot of fish that were bred in the fish room and in my home where I'm at now now. But I don't do too much now because, as you know, I'm almost 90 now. I don't get around like I do. I'm, I still have the... Uh, the tendency is I still love the hobby. I'm crazy about it, but physically, you just can't do it anymore. You slow down. I have slowed down a lot this year. So, so what is in your collection right now then that you've downsized? That you've downsized? Well, I probably have about thirty or forty tanks left. I'm excited about a couple things I have. I did very well with the red and green uh, uh, laser cats, and last year I had uh, about 28 show up in several spawns uh, total. I, I, I gathered about 28 all told of a gold uh, mutation that popped out of it, a, a gold color. So, and they look pretty nice. And they're really gold when they're young. When you feed them, of course, the brine shrimp does it. You feed them brine shrimp, that really gives them that golden glow, almost to the point of red. So I'm kind of excited about that. And I want to I want to try to fix that strain so I can release it into the hobby and it's there. That will be my parting gift. <laughs> you know, being up in age now, every day is a gift. I feel like I'm going to live to be honored. I hope I do. I hope I can come back here and when I'm honored and I can give a talk. Absolutely. But uh, let's hope so anyway. But I'll I'll still be doing something. I'll keep my fingers wet. And uh, that's that's my goal. What's your, uh, what's your all-time favorite fish? I love carisons. I really do. But, and when I was in Brazil, I was fascinated. I mean, I, I wish everybody could do that. Go to some foreign country, throw your net in the water, and wonder what you're going to come up with. That's a fat boy. That's just, if you love the hobby like I did, that was such a fascinating thing. I was crazy about that. I wish we had digital cameras when I was taking when I was on these trips. I made seven trips to Brazil, and I covered a good part of Brazil. I was there for six weeks with the Smithsonian, and uh, I was with Stan Weitzman, who was a curator of fishes at the Smithsonian. He got a, a, a National Geographic grant, so that included me, and we were there for six weeks. We did some research in the south of France for a month, and then we were in the Amazon for a week, and then in Venezuela for a week. And I wish I had a digital camera because the photographs that I could have had, I was so excited to collect fish. You go to a new place, a new river, a new lake, a new pond, a new small puddle of water, and you catch a fish to set up your photography equipment. It's real. It's it's kind of a pain, but with digital photography, man, you could just shoot away and you could see what you got. Yeah, and some of the. Uh, uh, it's great, you know. But then, and I I still have. A, there's a picture, and I mentioned it in, in my book, about a green Creagrutus. Uh, no, no, it wasn't Creagrutus. It was a uh, Harold Schultz took the picture, a Moncausia. And there's a picture in Jury's book, Caracoids of the World. When I saw that picture when the book first came out, and I saw that book, by the way, down in, uh, in Sao Paulo in a museum down there because Jury sent that book to uh, uh, Dr. Menezes, who's a friend of mine, and we collected together. And he gave him the preliminary book and asked him to review it, to check for mistakes and things like that. And I did see the book before it was published. But I saw the picture that Harold Schultz took, and I collected with Harold Schultz in 58. And he has a picture of a Mokausia that has the most beautiful green hue to the whole body. It was all like, almost like an emerald green. And I looked at that picture and said, that's impossible. I never saw a fish like that. And I wonder if that's a a color mistake in a printing or what. But when I was in Brazil, I caught a Creagrutus, which is a, uh, it's a, it's a carison. And it was just like that. It was emerald green, the whole body. And I think it's from, it, it's not, but all that whole species is like that. It's just that particular one stood out. And I think it's, it's in their diet, something they ate that caused that. Because you could see how some fish are really glowing with the colors they have. Uh, and to give you an example, I was on a banana plantation in the south of Brazil, and I was looking for some Sinolebius, in particular Oregatatus. And I had been to that banana plantation once before I met the gentleman who owned it, and he remembered me. 
And I remember that because I really got sick. I had dysentery. Man, I was a sick puppy. I didn't care if I died. That's how sick I was. Despite my illness and what I was going through, I still had a fish net in my hand. And the, he, he destroyed the population of those Oregatatas because he drained that area and where the bananas were. And he had dug a, a large ditch. The water was jet black from the bananas, the, the leaves, because you know, I don't know if you're aware of it, but <clears throat> bananas only live a year. And it's, it's not really a tree. And the leaves fall down, the whole plant dies, and a no su new sucker comes out from underneath the roots, and then a new plant grows. So they have one, you know, they have a harvest once a year. So those leaves keep building up higher and higher, just like peat moss with sphagnum moss. And so I looked in the ditch, the ditch was so black. If you put your hand in the water, it was so, so peaty looking. If you put your hand in the water and you only buried it, say, uh, two or three inches, you couldn't see your hand, that's how black it was. So I kept probing and I kept probing, and I said, there's gotta be something in here. Finally, I came up with these dazzling tetras. I mean, they were brilliant, brilliant red. They were, I said, I don't even know what this fish is. And I'm pretty good at knowing what these tetras are. I can recognize most of them. The time I got them back to the museum, the next day, I said, oh, these are high-fested bright-gun green eye. It's a, it looks like the green eye is a very close relative to the Von Rio tetra, which is from Rio. And green eye is very similar in appearance, but these were brilliant. I never saw a fish that was so red. And that was from the black water. They were, and I think the reason why they really fish there in black water, I think because it's so dark down there, and in order for fish to see each other, they get that extra glow. And they are really, I mean, you can't imagine a color. And I wish I had a digital camera that I could have photographed men in that, because the next day, when I, by the time I got them back to the museum and I had them in a battery of tanks, the color was great yet, but they weren't that brilliant. If I had just taken a picture of it, in the same way with that Creagrutus that was so green, if I had a digital camera, I mean, if, the selection of pictures I have. I got lots of pictures of fish, but I would have had an outlandish group of pictures. But today, I mean, with the, with the digital cameras, it's great. You can take these pictures on hand. But in those days, it was tough to set up the camera. You had the camera, you got to get the film right, and then you had to get the exposure right. Is this picture gonna come out? Is that, I'm not too sure. We got the setting right, the sun is out. We, you don't wanna be carrying all that equipment, you know, strobes and all that, so you, you kind of depending on the, the natural light. And so it's a completely ball game today. The only bad thing about it is you can't go to Brazil. Brazil is a fascinating country. I mean, it's, I love that country, but they shut it down. There's only a minimal collecting now. If I was to go down there and collect, they probably would arrest me and throw me in jail. You can't do it. There's only certain people that can do it. They shut a lot of places down. And there's so much diversification in Brazil with different species of fish. You just can't imagine what's there. I mean. The, I mean, so many different kinds of fish. It's amazing what's down there. Do, do you think that uh, they'll be finding new species for some time to come? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Dr. Myers years ago said that uh, two-thirds of the fish in the Amazon are still undescribed. And I think a few years ago they went down pretty deep. It's, I, don't, I forget what the, how deep that channel is, but it's pretty deep and it gets pretty murky down there. And they found some new species of, uh, I don't know, forget what it was. I'm trying to think what it was that was down there. But there's still a lot of undescribed stuff. Yeah. There's probably a lot of big catfish down there because they like the deeper water. Yeah. What, what surprised you the most on maybe your first trip to Brazil or maybe a subsequent trip that you weren't expecting? Well, actually, the first place I was with Axelrod, Herb Axelrod and I were good friends in the mid-50s. I met him about 1955, and, we, and I used to bring fish to his... Uh, place when he was in Jersey City, when he was just starting out the uh, the magazine, and I used to bring fish there once a month, fish that he had never seen before, and he'd photograph them, and he'd put them in his book. And uh, we had a good rapport, I liked him, and he, he was good to me, he was generous. And uh, I told him about Sinolebius, I told him that what an interesting group of fish they were. And I told him about General White, who was the chief of the Air Force at that time. Thomas White, and he made some several discoveries. It's all outlined in the book. I'm telling you all this stuff again. Uh -oh. You've got to get the book and read it because it's really laid out pretty strong there. But we did. he did decide to take a trip down there, and he invited him. He paid for it, 
and we went to Trinidad. That was the first place I actually collected fish, and we discovered a new fish in Trinidad. And uh, it was supposed to be named after me, but somehow it got named after Axelrod, the Hyphesibrock and Axelrodia, but it doesn't matter. It's a very pretty fish. Uh, there was about 52, I think about 52 species known on the island at that time. So we discovered a new one. I'm surprised that nobody found it, but yeah. there it was in a small pool, isolated pool. It was very dark. Yeah. There again, it was black water, and they were solid red. Yes. And then in the tank, they sort of paled out, but they were still pretty. You don't see them, uh, I, th I think, how long ago is that? That's in 1958 that I was there. That's a long time ago. It's over 50 years ago. Yeah. So I'll, it, I'll, I'll pull us I'll pull us out of the book because I don't want to keep giving spoilers away. Yeah. What do you think of those ornamental shrimp? Right. So here at Aquatic oh, I think they're Experience, fascinating. yeah, they're fascinating. I, I had some ornamental shrimp. The first ones that came out, the first one that was that bumblebee shrimp. It was very pretty, fascinating. I got some. It was I didn't. That was the first time I ever saw any kind of shrimp. We have grass shrimp along the coast here, and you can collect them and feed them to your fish. If you cook them, they turn bright red. That's the carotenoids in them. It's like a crab. You cook a blue crab, and what happens? He turns red. But anyway, uh, I had the, the uh, bumblebees, and I didn't know much about them, but I have a sump pump in discharge in my backyard. And I got them in, I think, during the uh, probably spring. And when that sump pump discharge goes into the ditchway in the back, it gets full exposure. I have a deciduous forest in the back of my house. I have about an acre. So there would be filamentous algae growing in that. So I knew shrimp would like the algae. I put that stuff in there, and they took off. I mean, you put a handful of, uh, of algae in there, hour later, it's gone. They have some appetites on them, and they were breeding like crazy. So it was my first experience. I never had any other kind of shrimp. I did get some red shrimp from a friend of mine not too long ago, and I put them in with my, I have a, a big batch of Cordomaculatus cats coming in. It's about, I had a couple of big spawns. I got about 50 or 60 in a, in a, about a 50-gallon tank. And I put them in here because there's a lot of algae growing. I said, well, I'll be able to eat the algae, but the, the catfish got them all. They oh, ate yeah. them all up. So <laughs> that's, that's my recent experience. But I haven't really had much, uh, I haven't had much exposure with them. But I do remember the bumblebee, and I loved them. They were very, it's a very fascinating group yeah. of things. And I think that's, that's really one of the big frontiers right now. I mean, yeah. It's really popular. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's one of the, the great ways to introduce new people into yeah, the hobby. It is. It is. Um, you know, especially here on the East Coast with, you know, the, the, the bedroom footprint, the house footprints yeah. being on the smaller side, yeah. being able to have a smaller nano tank mm -hmm. and have really beautiful ornamental shrimp in it, I think is fantastic. And, you know, they're doing the uh, shrimp competition. They're handing out the awards, and we've got international participation. And it's just, it's really fantastic and cool to see. Right. Um, from a technology standpoint, uh, aquarium technology, is there anything that you see right now out there that you wish you had when you started out? You know, I knew about, uh, I was pretty, uh, pretty much up on uh, uh, water softeners, and I did full with sodium exchange resin back in the 50s, and I was pretty successful with it, but I really didn't need it because my water was naturally soft when I was getting Wanaki Reservoir water from North Jersey. And I was very successful. That's what I was breeding neon tetras in. But I did use sodium exchange resin. But we didn't know that much in those days. If you have your water, which is soft, going through the, the resin, sure, it'll, it'll take out the, the magnesium and calcium salts, but it replaces with sodium. So you're not changing the conductivity. If the conductivity going in, say it's 100 microsiemens, when it goes through your, your bed of uh, resin, it's going to come out 100 because it's just replacing one ion for another ion. So you really not gain anything except if you do have hard water, it's, taking, it's getting rid of the calcium and the magnesium. It will help you. But I wish I had uh, the, uh, the stuff that they have available now. Now they got ion exchange resins, which is e that's even better. You run a column through that. You have a column and you run water through that. It make the water comes out like distilled water, and some fish. There's no question about it. If you measure the conductivity in Brazil, and some of those places around the Amazon, that water is really low. It's like two, maybe two microsiemens or five microsiemens. That's really soft water. It's almost like rainwater. You can clean, cl uh, collect rainwater, but then you really should filter it with carbon. It's a little tedious, but I often thought about making a. I did one time. I was thinking about. Uh, to give you an example, you could get an umbrella inverted upside down. 
and then punch a hole in it and put it over a barrel and then you can catch more water. And I said, why isn't there something like that on the market? And I did look on the internet oh, a number of years ago and sure enough, there is something on the market that you can collect rainwater and, and, uh, and use it. I don't, know, I don't know what it was for. I don't remember now what, why, they, why they did it. People that raise orchids, maybe they did it for that. I don't know, but if you're going to raise orchids, they need uh, soft water is better for them. But people take rainwater off the roof. They have a, they can redirect their water off the roof. But I wish I had the deionizers and the, and the exchanges that they had. And uh, what was the other one? The other one they have now available too. But uh, the only thing you have, you have to replace the membrane. So, so I, th- I think what's so interesting is that, um, and when I when I asked you that question, I mean, I'm in my head, I'm thinking the filtration and the lighting and things like that. But you, being such a, a, a an experienced breeder, you your response to it is related to water chemistry. Water chemistry. So, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what else. When I built my fish house, when I went to the garage, the first thing I thought, they got to have natural light. Light is such an effective thing on fish. I put six skylights in that in that roof, and my and my uh, my fish room was wonderful. I mean, the color that I had in my fish was exquisite. Everybody marvelled, and that was part of part of the uh, the factor there. It was because of the natural light. The natural light brought out the colors, and of course, I was collecting an inexhaustible amount of daphnia, and they were good sources of carotenoids, which color the fish up. I tell you one thing: I did when I was I used to go out to the meadows, which is part of Newark Airport now. I went out there, and I, I always searched. I knew that place upside down. You're not I, giving I, away anything in here. No, nothing okay, here good. because it's <laughs> it's. I might have mentioned it in there, but I I did come across a uh, brackish water pond that was actually. They actually, I don't know why they dug it, but it was dug out by uh, by earth movers somehow. I don't know why they used it. Was it for a firewall? I don't know. They eventually filled it in, but I, I said, oh, look at this big pond. There was a big mound of dirt along the road, and I, I never saw it. And I said, let me look and see what's on the other side of that mound of soil. I looked, and I see this beautiful long, it was an elongated pond. It must have been oh, a couple hundred yards maybe. I had my I always carried my Daphne in that with me, so I took a couple of scoops and I said, "Wow, the whole bottom is covered with what's this green stuff in here?" Well, it was green uh, cyclops. I collected cyclops in the past, but these were really green, and you could see it was like uh, like a little bit of algae. There was no fish in the water. I start feeding this this uh, uh, cyclops to fish. And at that time, I had black phantoms. In fact, I was the one that introduced black phantoms to the hobby. I brought the first ones back from Brazil in 58. I got them from Harold Schultz, and he collected them in the Mato Grosso. And I had my friend Fred Glody, who's in, he's in the book. He passed away years ago. He come in one. He used to visit me every Thursday, and we used to have coffee together. He said, geez, what kind of fish are these up here? I had a whole tank full of red phantoms coming up, and they were red. I says, those are red phantoms. Didn't you ever see them before? Yeah. He says, what's the color from it? I was feeding this this uh, this uh, cyclops that were solid green. It was the green algae that they fed on. They were rich in carotenoids, and that's what imparted that color. I mean, if you saw the color in those black phantoms to this day, you'll never see anything like that. They were brilliant red. So you collect that live food, and what they feed on, the algae is the secret to everything. You get live food that's fed on algae, then you're going to be a rich source of carotenoids, and that's what colors your fish up. Of course, brine shrimp colors your fish up, too. You feed newly hatched brine shrimp. That has an effect, and they all have an effect on, on what kind of color they're going to get. But today you have mices. You have uh, mices, which come from Canada. That's an interesting shrimp. That was a, an experiment that they conducted up in Canada. They were going to introduce mices to this big... Uh, uh, freshwater lake and they were going to really have trout take off. Well, it turns out that the mices aren't around in the daytime. They stay down when it's light. They stay at the bottom and they feed at the bottom. The trout are not down. They're up at the surface. And then they would come up at night and feed. Eventually, the trout died off. They didn't work, but the mices took off. They took over in that lake and, and that lake became a a, a source of, of uh, commercial uh, shrimp collecting, mices. Wow. That's where they get it. Actually, that mice, Mices relicta is the name of it. That's really a remnant of the glacier period. And when we had the glaciers, or when the uh, glaciers were here, they moved for what? That was 10,000 years ago. And then when they receded, they cut swaths of, uh, that's how the Great Lakes were formed. Mm-hmm. 
and this lake. So Mice's relict is a relic of a fresh of a saltwater shrimp, and then over eons of time, over thousands of years, they became accustomed to the fresh water. So now they're a freshwater shrimp. Wow. But, boy, it is an, a good, excellent source of carotenoids, but not all fish like it. But you can, and they're kind of big, but if you put it in a net and hit it with a hose, with a high-power hose like a nozzle, you can break it up into smaller pieces and then put it through a brine shrimp net and feed it to your smaller fishes. As a matter of fact, you can buy frozen, uh, you can get dried krill, you can buy dried mices. And what I did with krill already, I fed krill to young, very small fish, newly hatched uh, tetras, and how you do that. How do you get it, you might say, how do you get krill into a tiny little fish? You bust it up with a high pressure nozzle, and then you filter through different seines and different kinds of nets. And a brine shrimp net, if you get a brine shrimp net and you, and you, and you let that, what you just put through the net, the, uh, the uh, dry food, and just go up and down with it, let it go and seep through there, and you can see little fine particles, it almost looks like infusoria and they'll feed on that. So that's how you can feed krill to tiny babies that are just newly hatched, that are just swimming around looking for food. And that's one of the things that, it's early stages to feed them something that's rich in carotenoids, and it'll give them a good shot, and it'll help color them up at an early stage. So I like to color my fish up. I, and yeah, you can do yeah. it naturally, it's, and it's a good way. It's all my fish, and if you look at all my all the photographs that I have, most of my photographs of fish will have nice colors. So if somebody was struggling on the brine shrimp or to have consistent supply of brine shrimp, uh, that would be a good way to, to at least yeah. get a, a natural food into yeah. the into the fish right. to have them be healthy and colorful then. Right. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Well, Mr. LaCourt, um, you know, this has been an absolute pleasure. I want to be very respectful of your time. I need to get you back to aquatic experience okay. yeah, because nice I'm, I'm, I'm hogging up a lot of the time that other hobbyists want to. I can wanna... talk to you for about three or four days <laughs> if you want to. But then... be <laughs> that would be wonderful. It'd be a little tough to do. Yeah, but uh, Mr. Joe Ferdenzi, a uh, friend of the show, he'd get mad at me if I did, <laughs> if you know, I did I, that I, to I you. I have to tell you one thing as we're talking about uh, extended uh, conversations. I don't know if anybody ever did this, but I belong to a Metropolitan Area Killifish Association. In fact, I was one of the founders of it. Most of the guys died off. There was like seven of us guys that put that thing together back in the early 60s. or No, I think it was early 70s or late 60s. When I came back from Brazil, I spoke, I think, eight months in a row. I gave a presentation at the, because I had so much to say, and I still didn't finish it. So I have so many programs at home that I could do, but it's getting too late now. I mean, as far as, you know, my time is not there anymore. I'm getting older. My memory's still good, but I just don't get around like I used to, you know. I yeah. wish I could say I, I'm going to live another 100 years or like the Italians, which I am one of. Cendano, that means another 100 years. If, if I were to ask you one more question, sure. what, what would you like to say to the hobbyists now? What would you like to see um, the hobbyists kind of return back to, if anything? I think a natural way, uh, I, I don't know, just be observant. I, 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 let me say, let's put it this way. I think I'd give you advice. Be observant. Read as much as you can. Interchange with other hobbyists. If you learn something, pass your knowledge on. That's what I did. I, I'd love to share my knowledge with other people. And that's what history is all about. History is passing knowledge on so you don't make a mistake for the future generations. And we keep getting more and more knowledge. So that, that's my best advice, I guess, uh, to put it mildly. Yeah, you know. yeah. No, and I, and I think, so I've, I've been very much a, a vocal um, supporter of people joining their, their fish clubs. So if anybody um, that hasn't yet pulled the trigger on joining their local fish club, and I think this is in line right. with what you're talking about, please do so. Yeah. Join your local fish club. And not, and not just join your local fish club, but be an active participant. Engage with other members. Have discussions. Talk about your failures. Talk about your successes. Um, I, I know that one of the things that I always like to say is that you get you know amazing deals on fish and plants and selection at the auctions, which are a wonderful um, thing to, to do. But I, I almost want to de-emphasize that and want to build up the camaraderie and the friendship and the knowledge sharing that should be going mm -hmm. along with our fish clubs. And it's almost like a Kennedy kind of not, you know, it's not what your ask not what your fish club can do for you, but what you can do for your fish club right. kind of thing. And yeah. so, you know, it, it's great to go there and 
you know, hear a great talk and then get some great deals on some fish and, shri- and shrimp and whatever it is your club is auctioning. But step out of your shell um, and, and be an active participant and, you know, meet somebody new, have conversations and kind of build that family, if you will. Right. And, and, and maybe that will help us to have strong clubs like we used to have. Um, yeah. you know, w- with your experience or that was in your experience. Well, we, rather. Have some, we have some pretty strong clubs yet. As a matter of fact, I'll be speaking again uh, next, is it next April? And NEC is going to have their uh, convention. Is it next I, April? Or is it March? I think it's usually March or April, right? March or April, yeah. either one anyway. Okay. They, they asked me to speak there yeah. and they want me to <clears throat> speak a little bit about the book. And I think there's supposed to be a round table, the breeders uh, uh sort of camaraderie a, a conversation amongst so i'm involved in that too so i will be putting on a show and I'll, i'm going to call it a a photo journey and it's just going to be a, a several pictures from all of my different trips that i made and things that happened of course they can't have too many because if i have a lot i'll be talking forever <laughs> and they only give you so much time yeah. you know, and you have to cut it yeah. So I'm going to try to have something interesting for, but there's going to be no charts while I'm on here. And any of you guys out there that are, are speakers, try to remember this. This is one thing that it bothers me a little bit. And I know a lot of these guys are my friends, and I don't mean to hurt their feelings. But when you give a program or a presentation, show as many fish pictures as you can, because some of the guys that put on programs they have a tendency to have one chart after the other. Oh, well, the rainfall here in Nigeria is so many inches per, nobody really cares. (laughs) And then if this, and the water was this, and the temperature was that, and they have all these notes up there, and then they can, they go on to read it. I see what's up there. You don't have to read it, but you're wasting time. I want to see fish pictures, and that's what I always try to do. I always show a lot of fish pictures. I'll show an occasional habitat shot, which is interesting, People shot, which is ink, or the fauna. What about the fauna? Some of the guys have a tendency, especially specialists, they might just speak on a particular fish. They might be interested in a particular fish. When you go collecting, there's other kinds of fish. Anytime I went collecting, I took a survey of the catfish, the carisons, anything that was in the water that was different, I took an interest in. That's what people want to see. They don't want to see just one, one type of fish. You have a varied audience out there. Speak in generality. Show everything. Show that you're interested in everything that's in that stream, not just what you're looking for. Yeah, so that, that's, that's my that, advice. That's wonderful. Excellent. Yeah. All right, Mr. LaCourt. Well, let's go ahead and get you back to aquatic experience. Well, I hope everybody nice out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This has been such an honor and a privilege that you've Thank you very much uh, given me your time. So let's get you on back. And everybody, okay. I hope you all enjoyed that. So um, An Aquarist Journey by Rosario LaCourt. I will have links to where you can pick this book up. Again, be jealous because he signed my copy. And <laughs> you're just going to have to get a copy and uh, and just read it and enjoy it. Come up and to NEC in the spring. There you go. There. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Um, Hope you enjoyed the episode. Bye-bye, everyone.